I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Vernico. I'm Dean Detloff. We're kind of picking up where we left off last week. We were talking to Jim Hodgson about his um, experience doing development and solidarity work in in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. And he, at the end of the episode, did mention that if you want to be more involved, then you should probably check out IFCO and Pastors for Peace. So we decided to take Jim's uh, direction, <laughs> as we should probably do more in life. Um, and uh, we decided that we were going to talk with someone from Pastors for Peace. So this week we are talking with uh, Reverend Elise Higginbotham, who is a uh, a former United Church of Christ uh, pastor and also a former board member of IFCO, uh, which is like the parent organization for Pastors for Peace. I think it's a really cool conversation and definitely illuminating. Um, I think that she resonates a lot of the important points that Jim did. So if you're out there trying to triangulate the truth between different people, <laughs> this is a good way to do it. Um, <laughs> some some shared uh, insight, I think, between the two, which is really good and helpful. I think that like there's a lot to say about this particular episode, but um, you know, Dean and I we're religious people, and that's cool. Um, but also we're socialists, we're communists, we're out here, we're mad about stuff, <laughs> and we're not afraid to say it. Um, so, you know, it's one thing to get our perspective on whatever's happening in Cuba, but I think there's something really interesting and kind of special about hearing people who are like primarily pastors or have led more of a pastoral life than we have uh, talk about Cuba and talk about their experiences. So uh, hearing Elise just kind of get into it about Cuba and about uh, solidarity work and the importance of it is, uh, I think, something really uh, good, and uh, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, it's different to hear someone who spent their life in the ministry and that's what led them to Cuba to hear someone like that talk about the situation and the country and their relationships rather than reading, I don't know, your your communist newspaper and finding out what it <laughs> says. I mean, you should still do that for sure. But, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, important to see that these are different commitments that people make and they lead them to have some really, really unique uh, perspectives on solidarity and, and what it means to uh, talk with people in countries that maybe our own countries don't encourage us to uh, to talk with, um, sometimes literally and, and physically. <laughs> so uh, a really amazing way to get into the conversation. Um, all right, let's uh, turn it over to Elise. Welcome to the show, Elise. Uh, we really appreciate you being here. Whenever we have someone new on the show, uh, we always ask them just to do a quick introduction. So yeah, could you say a little bit about who you are and uh, and your relationship with Pastors for Peace and, and Cuba, maybe at large? Sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me. 
This is a real pleasure and an honor. You are actually probing uh, deep into some activities uh, of my past that were very exciting to me and remain important. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk about them. My name is Elise Higginbotham. I'm a retired clergywoman of the United Church of Christ denomination. And uh, a good chunk of my call to ministry and the ministry I exercised related to social justice issues, uh, to doing interfaith and ecumenical work, and international solidarity work, which is how I became engaged in Cuba-related work and got involved at one point in that ministry with Pastors for Peace, with which I still have something of a relationship. Um, I'm, I went to seminary in New York City, Indian Theological Seminary, uh, and I came from Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, that was uh, like jumping from the, the earth to the moon and back again. It was a, a very different atmosphere. And it was 1968. Uh, you perhaps have to be my age to know why 1968 is such a powerful year for people who got engaged in social change. But it was the height of the Vietnam War. Uh, it was the summer of the memorably violent uh, democratic convention. Uh, it was the height of the civil rights movement. Uh, it was the year of what we New Yorkers uh, not too fondly refer to as the Columbia bust when, uh, uh, well, universities all over the country, I think, were undergoing a lot of, of, of challenges with student activism around racial justice issues and uh, war-related issues. Columbia had a particularly infamous one in which the police were called and it, it made national headlines. So that, that was quite a time to be a student for ministry in a liberal seminary. And it really was out of context that I made there, uh, experiences that I had there, uh, events that went on right at that particular time in my life and place in my life that led me to go on to do Latin America work and, and Cuba work and become engaged with social justice and eventually to run into IFCO and Pastors for Peace. Uh, it's really fun to hear a little bit about your, your background. And I can imagine being formed and coming into the ministry in the late 60s like that would definitely turn you into a particular kind of pastor. So uh, it's nice to hear a little more about that background. Um, Cuba's been in the news a lot in the last few weeks. We can try to talk about that in a little bit. But maybe you could just first walk us through uh, Pastors for Peace and explain to us a little bit about what's all what that's all about. Uh, what is that organization? How did it come about? And uh, yeah, what was your involvement with it? Sure. Uh, the parent organization for Pastors for Peace is the Interreligious Foundation for Community Organization, or IFCO, as it is more commonly known. Uh, and again, IFCO was uh, an organization birthed during that 60s struggle uh, at its initiation largely around racial justice issues. Um, I encountered it uh, in seminary during the time when there was a great deal of activism and that included quite visibly in the religious community around the whole issue of reparations uh, as a form of redress for racial injustice and slavery. And uh, IFCO was uh, and remains a, a coalition of Religious, uh, mostly religiously related individuals, uh, uh, people that represent a, a wide variety of denominations and, and religious groups who were very, at that time, committed particularly to racial justice 
and to, as, as its name says, community organization, IFCO was uh, a clearinghouse and channel for a lot of community organizing efforts around racial and social justice, uh, both urban and rural. And as it developed and as it reached uh, more deeply into its constituency, I think it discovered that racial justice issues were in some ways of a piece and, and connected to broader issues of US policy and international injustices that uh, began to, to percolate into IFCO's consciousness. In the 1990s, uh, I was for a time the national staff member for, of the Interreligious Task Force on Central America, which was a coalition of largely mainline denominations, but also some other uh, religious groups and uh, uh, religious orders that did educational work and solidarity work uh, around Central America. You may recall the point when Central America was a really, really major headline grabbing part of uh, US policy struggles. And uh, the church was one of the places where some of those struggles got played out. And the church was a source of education, uh, a source of connection between uh, religious believers in the US and, and in Central America. Uh, IFCO at that time was engaging in programs of outreach and education by sending teams into communities to do intensive educational activities. They'd have Central America weeks in communities where in some cases, teams of Central American and US people familiar with Central America would go into the community, they would speak at a variety of churches and other venues, and, and just try to, to bring the real story of what the actual effect of US policy at that time was on Central America. Uh, it was very controversial. And uh, in many cases, people really didn't know anything except what they read in the daily papers or heard on talk radio. And so uh, those Central America weeks were pretty important. Um, the Reverend Lucius, the late Reverend Lucius Walker, who was the founder and longtime director of IFCO, was on a, a fact-finding trip uh, to Central America. And he was in Nicaragua in an area that was being contested by the Contras, and he was on a boat in an area that, that was uh, an area of conflict between uh, the, the Contra and uh, Nicaraguans in, 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 engaged in, in uh, liberation struggle. Uh, the Contra were, were a US-funded entity that tried to overthrow the, the then revolutionary government of Nicaragua. Well, the boat, long short, long story short, uh, the boat was attacked by the Contras and Reverend Walker was shot. He, uh, unfortunately, he fortunate, very fortunately was not seriously wounded, but he, he was wounded. Gunshots are uh, not, nothing to cast, cast aside lightly. Um, some people you might think if you went to a place like that and got shot would be run off. That was not uh, Reverend Walker. Uh, on the contrary, he said, okay, we need to do more to make Central America visible. We need to let people know what is happening in this part of the world. We need to know, let people know what people's needs are and what the effects of US policy are. That began what came, came to be developed as Pastors for Peace, which started out 
as uh, a program of aid caravans directed towards Central America and toward uh, religious partner organizations that received aid in Central America. Uh, at some point along that trajectory, uh, people who were engaged in Cuba solidarity work uh, also became uh, engaged with Reverend Walker. To be honest, I don't know which side made the first inquiry. I don't know if it, it was Cubans or Cuba solidarity people that approached IFCO first or IFCO uh, reached out to Cubans. But the long and short of it was that uh, at a certain point in the 90s, uh, Pastors for Peace began to do similar programs with Cuba. They began to, to do caravans of volunteers traveling cross country to stop and speak in each community where they spent the night and would carry aid uh, to, to partner, again, partner religious and uh, civil society organizations in Cuba. Of course, the difference between sending aid to Cuba and sending aid to Central America is that sending aid to Cuba within their, that it, with it outside of very, very strict regulation is illegal. Uh, the US has had a policy of total embargo and uh, refused to trade with Cuba for decades. And therefore, not only was it uh, a charitable thing to send aid or engage Americans in taking goods to persons in Cuba who could make good use of them, it was illegal. It was a protest against US policy in a very, very concrete way. So this has, in many ways, I think because, because of that, it's become the face of Pastors for Peace and the face of IFCO. And if, if you know anything now uh, or read anything in the news media about IFCO and Pastors for Peace, uh, it's probably going to immediately bring Cuba to mind. Uh, I actually served a term on the board of directors of IFCO uh, some years back. I was for several years on the New York City Steering Committee for the New York-based brigades uh, that went out from New York to cross the country and, and do the caravans and deliver the aid to Cuba. I have to say that I never actually went to Cuba with a Pastors for Peace caravan. I visited Cuba previously in doing other Cuba solidarity work, um, but I related to Pastors for Peace as, as a board member and as an individual solidarity activist. Well, it's so cool to hear you tell that story and just uh, you know give this good introduction to Pastors for Peace and IFCO, and um, it helps us, I think, you know, think about it a little bit more deeply. It's very easy to say um, that Christianity in the United States has a pretty right-wing bent to it. Um, at least that's um, it, it's an increasingly easy story to tell, especially given the Trump years. But I think there's um, examples of this going back, you know, a long time. Um, yeah, Pastors for Peace is an organization of clergy and you know lay people who have organized and openly resisted the U.S. when it comes to its policy on Cuba and you know other places as well, um, in order to bring aid to to the island. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about that contradiction between the um, I don't know. The story of of right wing Christianity of that like conservative impulse within Christianity and um, you know how it is that a group of clergy were able to bring bring aid to Cuba, a country that is it is illegal to bring aid to. Um, yeah, I don't know how did that all work out for um, uh, the folks in in Pastors for Peace. Oh, what a good question you ask. Uh, I'm probably open to the charge of defensiveness if I say I don't 
know if I would entirely agree with your uh, uh, definition or your analysis of Christianity as a as a right wing force or having a right wing bent, but I would be the last to deny that uh, Christianity uh, does have it's uh, a part of it that that is right wing and that has been used by the right. I think both of the those are true. Um, Interestingly enough, I think those kinds of conversations, however, have gone on within the U.S. religious community from time immemorial. I think there has always been um, a discussion about what does it really mean to be faithful. And people of certain political and social consciousness will respond to that question or interpret it much differently than people of other experience or, or other religious background. There is certainly a strong strain of Christianity that perceives it as an impulse toward justice virtually by definition. And there are many both individual Christians, individual congregations, denominations that lift that up and uh, proclaim that as essential to the gospel, that you cannot preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without also preaching a gospel of liberation, a gospel of justice, a gospel of care, uh, a gospel of, of equality, of acknowledging the, the humanity and basic right to a decent existence of all human beings. That's part and parcel of the gospel. Uh, I think, uh, proclamations of the gospel that may be counter to that, or that may uh, be used as supports to uh, certain conservative or even radical right-wing directions, uh, certainly argue with that. And I think they get uh, a lot of media space. I think perhaps they're, when you think the word Christian, that may be what immediately comes to mind. But I think uh, surprisingly enough that doesn't characterize the whole of Christianity nearly as much as I think the public image uh, of Christianity might lead you to believe. Uh, so as I say, there certainly are plenty of clergy and lay people who have resisted US policy in a variety of ways, including uh, on Cuba. Uh, before I became more actively involved with IFCO and Pastors for Peace, I was the staff for a small organization in the 1970s called the Cuba Resource Center. The Cuba Resource Center was founded by a group of Protestant denominations, mainly uh, their mission organizations, who before the triumph of the Cuban Revolution and the break of relations by the U.S. with Cuba, had had a history of work in Cuba. Um, there are many Presbyterian churches in Cuba. There are many Methodist churches in Cuba. There are many Baptist churches in Cuba. There are other denominations that have a history in Cuba. Uh, the U.S.'s policy of embargo and breach of relations ended those relationships. Effectively, uh, U.S. denominations could no longer send support to partner uh, denominations in Cuba. They could no longer send mission personnel. Uh, they could no longer have a relationship in that way with uh, faith partners that they have essentially worked with for, for a number of years. At the same time, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, after the triumph of the revolution, a number of Cubans 
were opposed to the direction the revolution was going. Um, some people would say that that's very much uh, a class difference, that rich Cubans tended to leave and less well-off Cubans tended to stay. That's not exclusively true, but there's some, some truth uh, to, to that observation that Cubans who had a great deal to lose by economically by the direction of the revolution did leave, came to the United States. In many cases, religious agencies were among their resettlers and uh, the ways that they became integrated into to U.S. life. So uh, U.S. churches uh, became one locus of the Cuban exile story. Uh, Cuba is a terrible dictatorship. It's terrible for everyone. It oppresses religion. Uh, believing people have to free, flee their lives. And U.S. church agencies and religious entities were one of the ways that story got spread. However, many religious agencies that had a history in Cuba also were very aware that there were many, many Cuban religious believers who chose not to flee. Not only did chose not to flee, but, but chose to, be, to remain to be a part of the revolution. Who could see in the goals and directions the revolution was going, things that were consistent with their understanding of the gospel and their understanding of leading a life of faith and wanted to stay in this revolutionary country, newly newly forming, in order to, to contribute to it as Christians and to stay. And there were some prescient uh, U.S. executives in some church offices who said, we need to stay in touch with these people. We need to, we need to uh, hear what they're saying, and we need to allow Americans to hear what they're saying. And so some of those funds that had, had formerly been used uh, for mission-related work in Cuba were diverted to what became the Cuba Resource Center, which was a small organization that both took some religious delegations to Cuba, but also through its publications and other activities, did some educational work that tried to amplify the voices of Cuban religious believers in the U.S. Uh, to help people say that here are Christians, for the most part in this case, that have chosen to remain in Cuba and who see something of the gospel in what is actually happening in their tangible lives in Cuba. And uh, Americans are not hearing the story and need to hear it. So clearly there, there is a place in uh, the religious uh, discourse for liberation theology, for revolutionary theology, for a sense that uh, cutting people off and refusing to connect with them is not the way to have a healthy human relationship, uh, and that this is, is consistent with the gospel. So uh, If Go Pastors for Peace, yes, was, was only one of, of a number of religious organizations who saw social justice as an integral part of the gospel, and that the U.S.'s role in Cuba was something to be protested, uh, both because it it uh, was damaging to the actual day-to-day -day lives of Cubans, uh, but also that it didn't allow people to hear from their fellow religionists what actually was happening to them and what they actually wanted and needed and believed. That's a long answer to your question. <laughs>
it's a long one, but it, it's a good one. And uh, I think it's one that we'll, we'll be able to return to as well, because, um, I mean, there's so many pieces of that that we can kind of keep on um, parsing out a little bit more. Maybe one of them is I, I really appreciated that bit about the story you, you said of uh, this commitment to that relationship and what can be learned in that relationship. So not just talking about Cuba, but, you know, talking with Cubans and trying to understand what's going on there. And, you know, one thing that I think Matt and I found really compelling about Pastors for Peace is this uh, uh, commitment to sending what they call friendshipments to Cuba uh, and uh, receiving delegations, as you were talking about, uh, and, and sending delegations to uh, building these relationships and friendships with uh, Cuban Christians. Um, can you talk a little bit more just about those relationships? Like, what does that look like? And, and what's their importance in building solidarity between Christians, you know, uh, from the U.S. and uh, from Cuba? I think just on the basic human level, whenever you uh, meet with someone from a different reality and discover they're a real human being like yourself, <laughs> something inside you changes. And just having that that contact is incredibly important. It, it's good for our our bodies and our spirits to simply become engaged with other people. There are some uh, particular relationships that Pastors for Peace and the Friendshipments have, have helped to nurture. Uh, there's a relationship with the Cuban Council of Churches. There's a relationship with the Martin Luther King Center, which is uh, a religiously supported social service organization in Cuba. Perhaps one of the more important and exciting uh, programs that grew out of IFCO's and Pastors for Peace connection with Cuba was a development of a program which offers scholarships to U.S. students who desire to have a medical education and become trained as doctors and work in underserved communities in the U.S. and who cannot afford it uh, are able to receive their education for free in, in Cuba. Uh, Cuba has quite an advanced medical system and a very good medical school, and uh, a program was developed out of these connections to enable largely uh, students of color and students who have a commitment to serving underserved communities to come to Cuba and have medical education there. Uh, it's it's a, a difficult challenge to go to a new country and learn a new language and live in a new culture and do quite advanced higher education, but it's incredibly rewarding. And I think of, of all of the many connections that Pastors for Peace has made with congregations and with ecumenical organizations in Cuba, that the one that perhaps strikes a, the strongest chord uh, and, and is very exciting to hear about is sending U.S. students to Cuba for med medical education, uh, students who otherwise probably could never afford or be able to be educated yeah, at that level and to be able to come back and serve in underserved communities in the U.S. Uh, it's so cool to name that as, you know, one one important fruit of this relationship. Uh, it just strikes me too midway through the conversation. We should have maybe done more of this up front, but I want to zero in before we return to the, the Christian and religious uh, context, just to draw a little bit more about the, the way that race plays into IFCO and this connection. Um, just as you were talking about that scholarship program, it made me think of that. Um, the fact that Pastors for Peace comes out of this organization that is 
that first started um, organizing around issues of race in in New York and elsewhere uh, just seems really uniquely important. So could you maybe just say a little bit more about that? Um, How does race play into uh, IFCO and Pastors for Peace and this uh, connection with Cuba? Uh, well, as as you as you rightly reinforce, IFCO was founded uh, out of the racial justice struggle in this country. Uh, Cuba is a country that also has struggled throughout its history with racism and racial issues. The first Africans were brought to Cuba as they were brought to the Americas for the most part all over uh, as slaves. Uh, there is a large Afro. Afro-Cuban community, a large uh, mixed-race community in Cuba, and before the triumph of the revolution, uh, skin color was a real issue in terms of social mobility in Cuba. Uh, One of the profoundly important effects, I think, of the revolutionary transformation has has been to, to change that dynamic, where skin color has not, has not been a factor in uh, people's ability to to fulfill their destinies, to advance themselves. Um, and the variety of ethnic and racial cultures in Cuba is is in fact celebrated and and valued. Uh, uh, it's some of the artistic productions of particularly the Afro-Cuban community are 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 famous and, and wonderful. I think uh, for Americans for whom the kind of racial struggles we've lived with have just become part of us, to go to a place like Cuba and see uh, a wonderfully diverse society at all levels is extremely exciting. And I think it's, it's really heartening for people who've been in this struggle for a long time and who started as persons protesting racial injustice um, to to see where you can, you know where you can go where a huge social transformation really can happen and really can change uh, how people deal with each other in terms of race where race no longer has to be a a, a defining issue um, and to see that that in fact just issues in a lot of ways are, are all connected. You know, there isn't a, a discrete division between international solidarity work and uh, work around women's rights and work around the rights of people of color and LGBTQ rights. You know, they're not distinct, different, not having anything to do with each other. They're all justice issues. And injustice in one area, uh, gets played out in injustice in other areas. And so make, making those connections, I think, uh, you know, certainly if pastors for peace isn't the only place where those kind of connections are made, where it's becoming part of our, our discourse in the US now. But uh, through, through those connections with Cuba and seeing how they've dealt with some of those justice issues in very different ways uh, is very exciting for a US person to see. Yeah, I think so. Um, well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I appreciate you answering that question. A little bit earlier in the conversation, you uh, you referred to the narrative about religion in Cuba, about uh, repression and censorship and so on. And I think that's a pretty common one even today. Uh, really recently, Dean and I saw an article in, uh, in Christianity Today, a pretty big publication 
that lays out that exact narrative about Cuba, especially uh, now given like the recent protests and whatnot. Uh, anyways, that that story doesn't quite square with what we've learned from folks in the solidarity and development world, to say the least. Um, but I don't know. Um, in your time doing solidarity work um, and you know doing work with pastors for peace, uh, what was your experience like? I don't know. How do you see religion fitting into the uh, political situation of Cuba? Uh, I think it's really a journey. First, let me say I regret I haven't read the Christianity Today article, but now I'm certainly going to go out and read it. <laughs> and I'm probably sorry that I can't address what it says a little more directly. But I would say that that uh, the relationship uh, between religion and the revolution in Cuba is an ongoing and, and very fruitful journey. Uh, it would be a mistake to say that every religious believer is wonderfully happy with things in Cuba. It would also be a, uh, a mistake to say that that religion categorically is is repressed or that the revolution is totally atheist. Uh, the answer lies somewhere in between. And in fact, it's a, a trajectory. It's an ongoing opening up of new ways to deal with each other. Um, at the point of the triumph of the revolution, I think there was a, a general understanding, certainly uh, within the ranks of the Communist Party of Cuba and the militants of, of the revolution, that religion had been a negative force and could continue to be a negative force in Cuban society. Uh, although Cuba, like much of Latin America, was a nominally Catholic country, it was perhaps more nominal than many other parts of Latin America at at that point in the late 1950s, the vast majority of the Roman Catholic clergy in Cuba were expatriates. Um, most of them, although not all of them, were Spanish. There were relatively few uh, indigenous Cubans in the clergy, so it was still kind of perceived as a foreign field. Uh, so there wasn't a, a strong sense of, of deep, deep rootedness uh, of Cuban identity. Uh, in, in Catholicism. Uh, the majority of the pastoral work was focused on uh, elite urban private schools. Uh, there was a, a very good religiously based education for the wealthy in major Cuban urban centers and uh, much of the church energy and personnel were, were focused upon that. Um, also, at least partially because of its proximity to the U.S. and the very close relationship uh, that developed between Cuba and the U.S. during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, Cuba was one of the first parts of Latin America that was very open to Protestant missionary endeavors. And it was quite clear, and you can see this in some of the publications at the time from uh, denominational missionary agencies, that spreading the, the enlightenment of U.S. culture uh, along with the Protestant faith was very much on the minds of missionary agencies who sent their, their personnel to Cuba. And But for better or for worse, uh, Cuba also had a somewhat larger Protestant population than did many other parts of Latin America. And some of its schools also uh, were well-known and, and competitive sought-after schools for Cubans that were able to afford that, that kind of education. So the, the deep-rootedness of Catholicism 
as part of a national identity was not present in, in Cuba at that time. Um, again, partly because the church was not seen, either Protestants or Catholics, as much of an indigenous enterprise, and because uh, churches had tended to reinforce the traditional order, uh, tended to be socially and politically conservative as, as well as religiously and, and liturgically, uh, faith was not considered very commensurate with, with being a revolutionary. Uh, at the time that I was actively doing Cuba work full time, it was still a, a time when uh, in, in the governing documents, uh, Communist Party membership was closed to people who professed uh, a religious belief. At the same time, in that first constitution of Cuba, freedom of religion was enshrined. Everyone had the right to believe what they wished and to uh, act on their beliefs, to worship as they wished, to, to uh, engage in their religious obligations as long as they did not uh, undermine or interfere with their obligations as a citizen. Now, what constitutes undermining uh, your obligations as a citizen, perhaps, again, uh, is a different kind of question, depending on who's asking and uh, what, what you're considering your obligation. But, but nonetheless, the idea that you, that you couldn't worship and be a citizen in Cuba was, was simply untrue. No matter what anybody tells you, it simply wasn't true. Um, over the years, that relationship has changed. Uh, slowly, slowly, as Christians who remained in Cuba and chose to be part of the revolution, uh, became engaged in Cuban society and in building uh, a revolutionary society and its structures along with other Cubans, uh, relationships between the party and relationships between other entities in Cuban society began to improve. And uh, while it's, it's a much more gradual and, and nuanced journey than I'm describing, uh, one of the upshots is that now uh, religious believers are no longer uh, prohibited from party membership. And in fact, a number of prominent Christians are or have become party members. And uh, the faith community is considered uh, a social entity, just like any other uh, in Cuban life. Um, all that notwithstanding, uh, I talked earlier about the fact that in the US, uh, churches were among those agencies that helped with the resettlement of a lot of Cuban exiles at the beginning of the triumph of the revolution period. Uh, and those were, the, those were the ideological voices that the church heard and was projecting. Um, and certainly there were both inside in Cuba and in external religious forces that were quite willing to use religion as a vehicle for undermining and opposing the changes that were happening in Cuba. And so there are plenty of Cubans that are cautious about religion and have not seen it as a necessarily positive force. Uh, my sense, and I have not been in Cuba recently enough to you know really see this with my own eyes, but from Cubans I speak to and to friends and colleagues who traveled there more recently than I have, is that this is just an ongoing dialogue. Uh, the party, other entities of 
of uh, Cuban society and religious institutions are in conversation with each other and find ways of, of supporting and growing together. Um, interestingly enough, although we don't think of it in, in, in this way in the United States, this is also true in our society. Um, religious voices are often mobilized for and against public policy in this country. Uh, and we have some real knockdown <laughs> drag outs over them. Um, religion, religious groups have certain privileges in this society or exempt from certain regulations, so on and so forth. Um, so uh, again, to, to say that it's exactly parallel, the two contexts are by no means the same, but we have these conversations in this country too. I think that is always so important to kind of uh, emphasize that, you know, it's true that Cuba and the United States are radically different in many ways, but there are, there are also, also communities of human beings <laughs> trying to figure life out. And there are a lot of similarities there too, that Cuba is not, uh, I don't know, a totally, you know, a bunch of aliens on a totally different planet ruled by some <laughs> robot government or something. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that too, right? There's a story I think that we hear, I certainly heard growing up in the United States, uh, that Cuba is this sort of authoritarian, uh, poor kind of hellscape, right? Where there's, there's no freedom, um, and uh, they're just kind of waiting around for the U.S. to save them. Um, but there is a, a, a robust participatory democracy in Cuba, although it is very different from the structures in the United States. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about how Christians in Cuba participate in those structures, um, and maybe in particular the folks who have a more um, positive orientation toward the revolution. Uh, how do they kind of make their voice heard, and Maybe how do they express their own Christian commitments in uh, the revolutionary situation of Cuba? Um, yes, despite the stories that you hear in the U.S., Cuba is not a, a rigid dictatorship where nobody has any freedom or any rights. Uh, there are there is there is a, a governing structure in Cuba that is called People's Power, Poder Popular, uh, which has elected assemblies at the local, the, the provincial, and the national level, and. Cubans are elected to represent their constituencies at those levels, and it is a, a democratic structure. Um, perhaps what is quite different uh, than we have in the United States, and which is sometimes rather scary to Americans, is a certain private primacy of the Cuban Communist Party. The party is considered the, the vanguard, of, uh, and its overall understanding of the goals and process uh, of where Cuba should go and what Cuban society should uh, should be like is is the key guideline for what happens in Cuba. However, uh, it, it, it grows, it learns, it changes uh, just the simple a simple example of, of formerly religious believers were not allowed to be members of the party. Now they are. That's a, a very specific change. Uh, since that's my area, that's the one I know about. I don't have, have another immediate example that can uh, that can come to mind, but I know I know that that's true. Um, Christians participate. The religious believers participate in uh, those aspects of Cuban society in the same way as other Cubans. They uh, run for for uh, assembly membership in, in people's power at their local and, and provincial and national levels. Uh, 
they participate in other structures of society like the local committees for the defense of the revolution. They uh, are members of labor unions. Uh, they are members of professional groups. I, I think what's important is that Christians see themselves first and foremost as Cubans. And they do what other what other Cuban, Cubans do. They, they're involved in the lives of the the life of their communities, they're in, uh, involved in the, the uh, structures that govern society in the same way that, that all Cubans are. Perhaps, uh, I, I don't know, because uh, I haven't been there recently enough, whether uh, the, the kind of, of energy that it takes to also uh, be part of, of a faith institution uh, means that you have uh, double responsibility in Cuba that I don't know if Cubans would would tell you that or not. Um, I know that it does take a I know I know from having having been a pastor that uh, just operating a, a church and and uh, engaging in social service ministry takes a lot of energy. Um, I think most Cuban Christians that I do know that I am in contact with feel those contributions aren't, just religious contributions, their contributions to society. And they do those things because they uh, they feel that they're making their society a better place. That's such a fascinating contribution. Um, just a, a good thought, I guess. I want to take a step back from the larger Cuba and religion conversation for a moment and, and talk about the, the more like pastors for peace a little bit more directly. Um, they're, um, uh, you know, so there's this sort of tradition of of giving aid to Cuba and bringing it there and creating these relationships, and that is all extremely fascinating. I think for a lot of different reasons that we've, we've already talked about. Um, something that I am really struck by, though, is that these uh, aid deliveries have not always gone so smoothly. Um, I was reading a bit of the uh, a bit of the narrative about Pastors for Peace from their website and doing a little bit of digging through some archival material. And um, I don't know, there are some instances where the United States government has uh, stepped in and stopped aid deliveries. Um, some really fascinating stories from the late 90s about the United States seizing, seizing the, um, the aid directly, especially around like seizing computers and whatnot that were trying to be delivered. So I, I don't know, what, what's your perspective on that? What, what do you think about the U.S. interfering in the delivery of humanitarian aid? Um, what was the response from Pastors for Peace at the time? Oh, the response from Pastors for Peace was not to give in. <laughs> uh, you better believe it. Uh, trying, to, trying to take aid to, to Cuba is no mean feat because the U.S. restricts uh, anything coming from the U.S. rigidly. Uh, there have been times when... Uh, certain exceptions for medicine and certain kinds of humanitarian aid have been made and those have been enforced uh, strictly or laxly quite randomly. Uh, sometimes you can get stuff like that through, sometimes you can't at all. Sometimes what the U.S. defines as uh, non-emergency or, or commercial or, or what have you uh, might be different from what I would define as, as humanitarian uh, humanitarian aid or meeting meeting a humanitarian need. So yes, you're absolutely right. Um, it, it would it would be uh, naive to think that uh, taking any kind of goods from the US to Cuba would not be making a political statement. Of course, Pastors for Peace takes aid to Cuba, among other things, to protest the embargo. Uh, we perceive the embargo as, as uh, a wrong-headed policy 
Not only is it immoral because it sometimes deprives people of things that they really need in order to have a decent life or in order to de develop themselves uh, politically, socially, economically, and so forth, um, but it, it's not effective. <laughs> it's, it's, it hasn't uh, resulted in, in any uh, kinds of changes in Cuba that the U.S. at official levels really wants to see. So, of course, taking taking aid, shipments of aid to Cuba is, is a political statement. And of course, the U.S. is going to sometimes respond by making a big fuss, and in some cases, a big public fuss. Uh, uh, it has seized aid sometimes uh, when uh, Caravanistas have crossed the U.S. border into Mexico. Um, U.S. government agents have been right there to seize and impound aid. Uh, Caravanista volunteers have sometimes sat around uh, containers of aid, uh, what have you, for, for days and weeks, just refusing to leave and, until it's released. Um, Reverend Walker uh, sometimes uh, went on hunger strike. Uh, sometimes uh, the U.S. made big public statements, uh, arguments over IFCO's tax exemption uh, have played out. Uh, it's it's not easy, but whoever said a political struggle was easy. Uh, that's why we call it a struggle. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we don't we don't make. Uh, Huge changes in in uh, unjust policies easily. Uh, those policies are there because presumably somebody benefits from them and uh, wants them in place. And it's always harder to change a policy than it is to keep it in place. Um, I've been told more than once, and it was long enough ago that I regret that I can't give you any names, but by State Department officials that if we didn't have an embargo policy in place against Cuba now, we wouldn't impose it now. But it's there. And there isn't uh, a high enough priority in terms of U.S. interests to, uh, to revisit it. Uh, there's also, as I'm sure you know, there's, there is a strong political constituency in the Cuban exile community which certainly in some parts of Florida, and I think sometimes in some parts of New Jersey, I don't know about elsewhere, can make or break uh, certain people in political positions. So uh, there's, a, there's a real political force there. Um, but Pastors for Peace, Peace's response has always consistently been not to give in and uh, never to, to just simply give up and go home. <laughs> Uh, and aid sooner or later has, has gotten where it was going. Uh, that's so cool. I love hearing that. Uh, what a neat testament to, um, to that commitment to solidarity in a real way, you know, putting um, people's bodies in, in, uh, on the line to make sure that something gets done so that other people have things to eat. And, uh, yeah, it's just a really amazing testament to everything you've been saying to hear some of that story. Um, as we're reaching the end, uh, with, with just a few minutes left, really, um, you know, I'm kind of putting you on the spot a little bit, but I think everybody's talking about Cuba this month because of all kinds of events that are happening there. As you said earlier, it's, you know, you haven't uh, been directly involved in all that in a while, so maybe you're not comfortable commenting too much on it. But I just feel as somebody who's spent so much time in Cuba solidarity work, 
uh, it'd be great to just get your thoughts on kind of the shape of Cuban society, what you make of these kinds of uh, uh, events, and also what you make of the, the conversations that happen around things that happen in Cuba. Right. Um, you're right. This is, a, this is a delicate time in Cuba. Um, Cuba's undergone some, some severe economic changes in recent years, and uh, I'm not an economist or an historian, so I can't tell you precisely what, what they are, but I know that they have created a lot of, of economic difficulties. Certainly earlier on when uh, the Soviet Union disappeared and the uh, economic support that came, came from the Soviet Union disappeared also, that was a time of, of considerable tumult for, for, for Cuba. Um, now, I think uh, particularly the issue of during the uh, Trump administration, one of the, the measures among others is that uh, Cuban-American family members have in more recent years been able to send remittances to, to Cuba that have been a source of economic support for their families. And uh, during the Trump administration, that channel was closed and has represented a, a severe economic hardship. Uh, that and some other issues of Cuban economic and monetary policy have resulted in a, a time of terrible economic distress for Cubans. Uh, and although Cuba is a very, very egalitarian society, um, and really, I think, has always done quite a good job, no matter what anybody says, of making sure that nobody is, is totally left out. Nobody just stars for total lack of resources. Um, when, you, when you have a smaller, a smaller pie to divide, everybody gets a much smaller piece. And uh, the economic difficulties are very real. Uh, I think people are protesting their, their own conditions of, of increasing poverty and wanting more to be done about it. I think it's it's possible that decisions have been made at the uh, national level or the party level that have people feel have not benefited them and that uh, the party is old and out of touch. Um, I can't speak to that, but it's a complaint people have. And I know that political structures reify sometimes as they get older. And so whether changes need to be made there is, is something I can't speak to directly, but it wouldn't surprise me if changes didn't need to be made. Long and short, what I'm saying is I don't think Cubans are so much protesting rigid dictatorship, which is forcing them to be poor. I think they're saying we have problems and you're not helping us solve them fast enough. And the problems are very, very real. Part of those problems are indeed caused by U.S. policy. Uh, the U.S.'s embargo against Cuba has a huge economic weight. And uh, an openness by the U.S. and an openness by the U.S.'s allies to actually intentionally be helpful to the Cuban people as opposed to simply be an enemy of the Cuban government would, be, uh, would make, I think, an immediate economic difference. Um, of course, there are Cubans who, who believe that the government is terrible and would like to leave. Uh, I think in this country, we have plenty of people willing to amplify those voices and say, that's the problem. I'm not sure it's it's quite that simple. Clearly, Cuba is in economic difficulties. How best to help it, I'm not sure, is a continued policy of 
trying to uh, overthrow the government and uh, make it into make it into something completely different. Interestingly enough, um, the revolutionary government has been in place, the revolutionary system has been in place for decades now. And although certainly there have been people who have chosen to leave uh, for a variety of reasons, many of them economic, um, the revolution generally has been quite stable and quite popular. Uh, and so I think uh, to look at this as uh, a tipping point to say, oh, this has been so terrible for so long and people are finally going to make a, a pu push for freedom and uh, overthrow everything that's gone before, I think would, would, uh, not, would not be the case, would, would, would not be asked. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, um, you're right. It is a sort of delicate moment in, in the history of Cuba, and uh, we do need to be careful of the way we, we talk about it and, and what we suggest and, and whatnot. I think the, the point that you're drawing out here, though, that, um, I don't know, Cubans have a lot of diverse ideas about, you know, what, what the best course is, is probably right. Um, and uh, unfair to, I think, over over exemplify, I mean, I guess, like anti-government protesters uh, in light of the ways that, you know, a lot of other Cubans might right. feel. So. Yes, I think you're quite right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, um, we, we appreciate, I mean, all, all of this that you've given us here, it's a lot to think about for sure. Um, I, I think, though, before we let you go, uh, I mean, among our listenership, there are a lot of folks who are interested in getting involved in solidarity work and just trying to figure out how, you know, you plug into these kinds of things. So um, as a person who has been a part of it, uh, what would you recommend to people who are wanting to be, uh, I don't know, involved or, or getting more interested in these kinds of things? Are there, uh, I, don't, I don't know, um, IFCO? Are there other organizations to be a part of? Um, how, how do people go about doing this? Yes, I, I would make three suggestions. Uh, one would, would obviously to give a little push for IFCO since that's my uh, closest affiliation. IFCO News, I-F-C-O-N-E-W-S, IFCO News, all one word, dot org, is uh, IFCO's website. And you can, or Pastors for Peace's website, and you can get connected with with uh, IFCO and with Pastors for Peace, you can get on their newsletter list. Uh, you can check with them whether they know of activists or organizations in your part of the country that you might want to link up with. But uh, Pastors for Peace has a broad network throughout the country, and uh, a little checking in with them might yield a fruitful relationship. There is also a national network on Cuba, nnoc.info. National Network on Cuba is a, again, a, a broad coalition of organizations that what they have in common is opposition to the U.S. embargo against Cuba, but they uh, approach Cuba, uh, Cuba work with a, a variety of constituencies and varieties of different programs. But if you want to go to their website, uh, you can get a little sense of, of who's involved with, with that network and whether one part of their coalition might be a, a place that would be a, a good place for you to get engaged. Uh, the last one I would suggest is if any of your listeners are in fact uh, mainline denominational church people, you might uh, get in touch with your own denomination. Uh, check with your Latin America Caribbean mission agency or your denomination's social justice or public affairs, public policy agency. Um, many denominations uh, are parts of coalitions that relate to Cuba, uh, that have partners in, in Cuba, denominational partners and, and ecumenical partners, social service partners. And uh, if you want to, to work 
specifically through your denomination or your, your faith community, that would be a, another source. Uh, there are a couple of, of denominations. I know the United Church of Christ, I believe, and uh, the Presbyterians, and I'm sure there are others, but those are the ones I know, uh, have, have con a congregation to congregation individual partnerships uh, that you can get, you know, get, in, get engaged you know, very directly at a very human level with uh, fellow believers in Cuba. So that's a, a channel for people that might particularly be interested in, in their faith connections. That's really great, Elise, uh, and wonderful to be able to point people in a variety of directions. So thank you for that at the end. Um, we've really appreciated chatting with you. And uh, yeah, always uh, a pleasure to kind of hear more about the stories of Christians involved in this kind of work uh, over the years and the decades. It's nice to uh, have access to all of that with somebody right here talking to us about it. So really grateful for uh, your work, your time. Um, thanks for sharing a little bit about that with us uh, on this episode. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure getting to know you and a pleasure sharing this time with you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can also uh, hook up with the uh, organizations that Elise mentions at the end of the episode. Um, and if you do, maybe let us know how it goes. It'd be cool to hear a little bit more about other people's experience um, and how folks are getting connected up with different resources. Uh, you can follow us on social media. We're everywhere. Uh, our music is by Amaria Armstrong and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation, never get tired, never bored, don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Where well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have.